Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is from Song of Songs 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. The bride confesses her love. She. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Others. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. She. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Solomon and his bride delight in each other. He, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Others, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. She, while the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. He, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. She. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. The word of the Lord. All right, church, this is going to be fun. Make sure you're in Song of Songs. We're going to be tracking for the next two months in this book of the Bible. It goes Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and if you hit Isaiah, go back to the left, or type in a Song of Songs into your favorite app. Um, through history, the Song of Songs has been interpreted in three primary ways. I'd like to begin by reviewing a, a couple of those so we kind of get our bearings a little bit about what we're doing in this book of the Bible for two months. The first, let's call it the over-spiritualization approach, or over-spiritualized approach. Over-spiritualization is about finding spiritual meaning where none is intended. You may have some friends like this or you know, family members. They find spiritual meaning where none is intended. This has led many commentators to allegorize the Song of Songs. Proponents of this view suggest that the woman and man that sort of go back and forth in this poem were not really real lovers in real history, but they were rather features of King Solomon's imagination used only to sort of poetically explain the nature of God's love for Israel and Israel's love for God. The scholar Robert Alter explains that figurative language is actually more prominent in the Song of Songs than in any other book of the entire scriptures. But allegory is very different from figurative language and metaphor. See, allegory invents in order to explain, but metaphor illustrates with truth in order to explain. 
See, romance lends itself, doesn't it, to the language of metaphor because plain language just falls short of telling you how I feel about what's going on in me. So I'm going to talk about birds and the sun and the rain and the seasons. I'm going to pull at all of these pictures so that I can communicate something that regular prose just cannot perform. So this poem can't just be only about God. A second interpretation, which has gained more momentum in more recent years, let's call it the over-sexualized approach. Many modern scholars have gone the other way from historic interpretation. Due to the lack of any overt theological teaching or the infrequency or even non-existence of the presence of God's name in the poem, they've determined that the song is meant to liberate people by portraying an uninhibited view of human sexuality. And in, in particular, in light of the prominence of the female's voice, the woman's countercultural role, this sexual liberty, if you will, is particularly good news for women. The bride in the poem not only speaks first, but accounts for well over half of the content of the poem, while the man only a third. And she's also the initiator in expressing a romantic and sexual boldness unheard of in the ancient world. But so much of the song and so much of love itself begs, demands even, for richer fulfillment than sex and romance can supply. So this poem must be more than just about sex. Yet I think in these two primary readings, these first two anyway, they're very telling about how we interpret the text and how we inhabit these ideals. You see, each of these interpretations, I think, demonstrate two primary distortions of our collective sexual imagination. These distortions have powerfully impacted our views of our body, of marriage, of dating, of romance, of sexuality in general. The first distortion is that sex is necessary, but it's dangerous. I wonder if you're familiar with this perspective. See, while many who allegorize the book would concede the, concede the utility of sex for procreation, fulfilling God's mandate in Genesis chapter 1-2 to be fruitful and multiply, right? They would passionately quote back to us what is said three times in the Song of Songs, not to stir up or awaken love until it pleases. They say sex is all about God. So it's necessary but dangerous. The second distortion is that sex is just sex, but it's also deeply connected to your identity. This is, from one vantage point, tells us that sex is merely a physical act for which there are low stakes so long as it is consensual and safe. Yet from another vantage point, this same distortion suggests that the modern view of sexuality is actually deeply woven into your self-understanding in some really substantive ways. After all, the woman seems unhindered by any cultural expectation or outside influence when she begins this poem by saying, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. So some say sex is all about you. Some say sex is all about God and that it is necessary but dangerous. And some say sex is all about you. It is just sex, but it's also deeply connected to your identity. See, both of these distortions are deeply damaging for the very same reason. is because they both deal in shame. Teaching that sex is all about God led to a purity culture, particularly prevalent in the 1990s here in the United States, which led kids to believe that if they had sex before they were married, God would punish them with unfulfilling marriages or even condemn them to lifelong singleness, as if that was some kind of condemnation. 
On the other hand, believing that sex is all about you has led to a generation that presumes God has little to say or care about your physical bodies, which is especially damaging rhetoric when your body has been violated. Today, I want to begin by sharing with you what I think is the third approach towards sex in the Song of Songs, one that is free from shame. Because regardless of which way we have been taught about sex or not taught about sex or about the Song of Songs in particular, odds are we are dealing in shame as it relates to this subject. Psychologist Dan Allender describes shame as a barnacle that can die, but its glue holds you to the host. That means that this will be a tedious process of healing for you and me, what I believe the Lord has before us the next two months. It will take time. In many respects, this will just be the beginning of something. Routinely, I'll probably get about halfway through my notes and go, all right, that's, that's enough for today. <laughs> God made you, church, a spiritual being. You bear his image. But he also made you a sexual being. Your soul dwells in gendered flesh, which comes with desires. Therefore, God made your body for worship, but that worship is meant to be embodied through physical enjoyment and pleasure. That's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about why sex is for you, but it's not about you. I want to talk about why sex is for us, but it's not about us. And to do this, we'll follow the same basic outline every single week through the Song of Songs. We'll think first about God's design, then we'll look at our distortion, and thirdly, we'll look about our, to our healing from that distortion. So we'll look at the design, the distortion, and then the healing. And I pray that through this series, what will begin to happen for each of us is that that glue of shame that's holding us onto something or something that's holding on to us that we ought to be freed from will begin to lose its power. So today, here's how we'll organize our time around the idea of love. We'll look at the design of love, we'll look at the distortion of love, and then we'll look at the healing of love. Let's pray. Father, Uh, Many of us would rather talk about just about anything other than this, Um, and yet here we are. By your providence and your care, you desire to shape and reshape our consciousness, our understanding about our bodies and about this body you've given us as humanity, about marriage, about romance, about love, about sex. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak so lovingly and clearly with truth and with grace that we would become a people no longer riddled with shame, but completely enveloped with your joy and glory. I pray for my sisters for whom this is a deeply sensitive subject. I pray you would bring them healing. I pray for my brothers for whom this is a deeply sensitive subject. Would you walk with them through this, Father? Would you help all of us to become the people that you're calling us to be so that we can walk in the light even as you are in the light? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So King Solomon is the son of King David. And like his father, his father wrote 73 psalms. Solomon also was a writer. And 1 Kings 4 tells us that Solomon actually spoke 3,000 proverbs and he wrote over 1,000 songs. He was prolific. Not only so, but his words are recorded in the Proverbs. He wrote Ecclesiastes, which we're going to look at this summer. And he also wrote the book that's before us, the Song of Songs, or if you prefer, the Song of Solomon. So from the outset of the book, we read that Solomon's own description of his poem or his song. Look at verse 1 with me as it reads. It says, the song of songs, which is Solomon's. So though his authorship is always contested, because this is what, you know, intellectual folks like to do, debate things about who wrote what and why and where and how, it's probably, it's best for us to take him as the primary author, not only because of this, but also some contextual evidence that we'll look at uh, through the next couple of weeks. 
But that's what he plainly preserves here in the first verse. Not only so, but in the first verse, Solomon tells us that he sees his words as a sort of magnum opus. That is, he sees this as his best song of all songs. But even more than that, he seems to be suggesting that this is the greatest lyrical expression ever. That's bold. That seems a little grandiose, right? He's like, this is the greatest thing you will ever read. You're welcome. He says it at the very beginning. He says, well, let me think for myself, please, Solomon. Thank you. But when upon further consideration, knowing that these are Solomon's words and knowing other writings and what his posture likely was, from the very beginning, I think what we're learning is that his song is meant to point us to another song. His song is meant to point us to something greater, better, more enduring, and more beautiful than the human affection which is summarized here in this poem. What is captured here, then, is really a love between two lovers that points us to a love of loves, points us to the love of loves. See, their love is real, and their love is physical. Their love is for them, but their love is not about them. You see, therefore, at every moment of human elation, we're going to be invited to worship the one from whom all this love is given and to whom all this love points. That's the primary feature of the design of love. Human love is about another love. Human love is about another love. Our love for each other is always meant to be shaped by God's love for us and thus point one another and our community to the love of God. The Apostle John loved writing about this theme. And the Apostle Paul makes this explicit in his writing in the first century to the church in Ephesus in speaking about love and sex and marriage and romance. Paul says, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, human love is meant to tell the truth about divine love. When we fail to rightly set our gaze on this greater affection, we then distort love's design. In other words, when we make human love exclusively about humans, when we over-sexualize love, we distort God's intentions for love itself. However, we also distort God's love when we belittle human love and over-spiritualize the love of God. See, one of the first things that we notice about the lovers in the Song of Songs is their utter delight in one another. This freedom and this joy, this ease, if you will, it begins with the bride. Look at the second verse there onward, chapter 1 of Song of Songs. She says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Okay, she's pumped. She's excited, right? She's got it bad for this dude. She wants to kiss him. She wants her. She wants to kiss him, and she wants him to kiss her. She wants some wine. She wants this to be a joyful situation. She's intoxicated by his smell. That's amazing. She admires his reputation. She knows other women, women would love to have She wants to run away with him. But she also wants to have sex with him. You notice this. Look at verse 2. See that word love. That word that most of our English translations simply translate as love is really the Hebrew word dod, which means lovemaking. So scholar Richard Hess puts it all together for us when he says that the kisses of the mouth and the lovemaking and the wine join together to provide the reader with an introductory verse that plunges us into the heady waters of this poem. Here is not gradual acclamation, a step at a time, but rather a baptism by fire. What's Hess saying? We're jumping right in. There's no buildup. If you thought we were going to get, you know, maybe around fourth message, really start to get clear, she launches right out and she's like, let's 
go. This book is about romantic love. This is no spiritual allegory. It's about sex. It's about romance. It's about marriage. It's about attraction. It's about physical pleasure. That leads us to the first thing that we should notice about God's design of love by beholding the love of this couple. Love is a delight. It's a delight. There's even something foreign about her freedom because it's without shame. She's not qualifying anything that she says. The writer of Proverbs celebrates this truth too in Proverbs chapter 5. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Romantic love is meant to be a joy, but it's not simply a joy. Notice these feelings and experience of love long to be expressed physically. That's good. That's right. That's how God has designed them. She wants to kiss him. She wants to smell him. She wants to have sex with him. She wants to draw close to him. Her longings, her love longs to be expressed in the flesh. That's a good thing. That's how you've been designed. It's what psychologists call embodiment, something we'll talk about throughout this series. And as we continue the poem, we see more of God's design for love. We see that it's communal. Notice the women's friends chime in. That's right, she wasn't saying this alone by herself. She was talking to her girlfriends about this. This is fantastic. Look at how her girlfriends respond. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. This is amazing. This is so human. You've been there before, right? Where you say something, maybe you got really too excited, you said something you didn't know, you said it like, that's dope, you should be excited. You should be excited about your wedding day. That's amazing. So her friends respond to her longings and her desires, and they're not in competition with her. So often we are in competition with our community, like, ah, she beat me. He beat me. He got to experience that first. There's none of that here. This is a community that is rejoicing in their friend. They're watchful over her. They're celebratory over her. They're committed to her joy, it seems, just as much as she is in this romance. And throughout the poem, they serve as a kind of choir, rejoicing, encouraging her in the background, exulting over their love. Isn't it wonderful that this couple is not just isolated in their affections like so many of our modern stories tell us? The Romeo and Juliet narrative is everybody's against you. You go do you. Don't worry about the community. Here, the community is intricately involved in their romantic story. Okay, so we've collected a few ideas about love's design. It's, it's not comprehensive. It's a glimpse. This is a poem, not a textbook. Love is a joy. Love is, longs to be expressed physically, and love is communal. And it's at this aspect of love, at each aspect of love's design, that we experience a distortion. From the bride's joy, shame now shows up, as it often does in our most intimate relationships and in our conceptions of ourself. The woman vulnerably conveys a deep level of self-consciousness now in verse 5. Notice what she says. I am very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tent of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark. Because the sun has looked upon me, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? So there's a lot here, but the bride in particular, 
is communicating a deep level of feeling ashamed about the color of her skin. As a Middle Eastern woman, her complexion was likely already dark, but she also has been mistreated. You notice she says that her brothers made her work in the sun too long, working the fields, and so long so that it changed the complexion of her skin. Her skin got darker. As she anticipates then being naked before her beloved on her wedding night, she is unsettled by how she looks. In fact, a better interpretation of verse 5 is I'm black yet beautiful. She begins with confidence, with self-assuredness. She starts with joy from the previous passage, but then she reveals that she's at war within herself. She's battling shame. She says, do not gaze at me because I am black. See, colorism is not a new distortion of the body. Founder of colorism healing, Dr. Sarah Webb, defines colorism as the social marginalization and systematic oppression of people with darker skin tones and the privileging of people with lighter skin tones. Something, quite frankly, that I cannot personally fathom. Can't, can't understand, can't know because of the color of my skin. Yet the bride is communicating something here that we must pay attention to regardless of the color of our skin. The bride felt lesser because she was darker. A body meant to experience joy now we see is one riddled with shame. Not only so, but the bride has endured physical trauma. It's impossible to overlook that the men in her life who were meant to care for her hurt her. That's trauma. Her brothers were angry and used their familial and physical authority to force her into manual labor to the point that it changed the complexion of her skin. See, her body was not simply born in a way that society deemed less worthy in her day and in ours, but she was also physically abused. And now as she is approaching her wedding night, considering being fully naked before her soon-to-be husband, she is overwhelmed with unworthiness. Don't look at me. In other words, her shame is now a threat to love's joy, and her community isn't celebrating over her. It seems to be against her. A body previously longing to be physically, a love previously longing to be physically expressed is now frozen with fear. Church, do you see? She needs healing. So do we. You see, the distortion underneath the bride's shame is ultimately coming down to this idea of a disconnect between her body and her soul. Not only was her culture telling her that her black body was not beautiful, but her brothers were also exposing her body to harm. In other words, they are saying your body is ugly unless it's useful, unless it is doing work that benefits us. Her flesh wasn't seen through her sacredness. And this has been our curse from the very beginning. See, as our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God, Genesis tells us in Genesis 3, verse 7, the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. In fact, when the Lord then comes in the coolness of the day, Adam and Eve hide behind a tree. First they hide behind leaves, then they hide behind a tree. And God says, why are you hiding? They said, because we were scared. He says, why are you scared? Because we were naked. He said, who told you you were naked? See, previously they were joyful. They were communal, physically expressing their love through sex. Now, like the bride in Song of Songs, they're self-conscious, Adam and Eve are, about their bodies. 
The instant they reject God, their bodies were divided from their souls. We might say that their sexuality was severed from their spirituality. Ironically, when their eyes are opened, church, they saw less, not more. They no longer saw their flesh through the dignity of the image of God. They perceived imperfections. They felt anxious. They felt worried about what someone would think. And so they hid. They hid behind fig leaves and they hid behind trees. Patrick Rich Velotas explains, Adam and Eve find themselves in shameful entanglement with their bodies because of their estranged relationship with God. He goes on to say, our sexuality is perverted by a powerful root of shame. My sisters and brothers, this is the healing I think we're looking for. This is the healing that we need. We need healing because of the way that we look at our bodies. We've learned to look at our bodies. The way we've learned to look at one another's bodies as disconnected from their souls. We need healing about how we view love because this is all a distortion that caused by sin. Now, how has this happened? Well, some of us feel shame because of the over-spiritualization of sex. Perhaps like me, you grew up never being discipled about sex, but being warned all the time that sex was dangerous. Like on a sitcom, when someone said sex, the channel just changed. And I'm like, who even has the remote? How did that even happen? Like even the word itself was something that's like, oh, back off of that. See, we learned that sex and things like pornography or masturbation, these were wrong things, but we were never given understanding about our bodies and these sexual urges that would lead us to such things. So sex becomes like this fire. Get away from it, stay away from it. But where does this fire come from? How do you make fire? Is fire good? Is it bad? Right? So we have this complete relationship with something we have never been given any understanding to, and that's where the shame comes from. We only learned that one day, after abstaining from it for our entire lives, that sex was going to be awesome with the person that we eventually married, right? It would be incredibly joyful, and you would know exactly what to do when the time was right. Couple questions. What happens if you don't wait? What happens if you didn't wait? What happens if you do have sex before you're married? What happens if, like me, you become addicted to pornography? What happens if you get married and you feel too dark? What happens when you feel like, I don't even want to have sex with this person? What do you do when it feels broken, when you don't like, even know what it means to be sexy or to be sexy enough? What if you never get married? Then what do we do? This is what leads to shame. It's a distortion. Your body and your soul have been separated, a spirituality without a sexuality. This is why some of us feel shame. Others of us feel shame because we bear the wounds of freedom. What I mean is that there's this freedom that has left us unsatisfied. It's an over-sexualization. We were told that sex was just sex, but long after that breakup happens, there's some connection with that person still. We were told pornography or masturbation, these were all good things, but what about the unjust industry that leads to all of those videos? What about the manipulation of people and young women in particular that are merely there for your pleasure? What about when it turns you into a performer in the bedroom and not a servant? What do we do then if all of this freedom leads to this brokenness? See, this distortion has taught us to use sex as a cover for a lack of intimacy, a lack of trust, and a lack of love. 
It's brought cycles of asking sex in our bodies, or really the bodies of others, to bring greater and greater experiences of sex and richer and richer identities, but we were never and have never been made whole and satisfied. So what happens when freedom brings addiction? What happens when we feel used? What happens when we feel left unsatisfied? Shame. Your body and your soul have been separated. You've been given a sexuality without a spirituality. See, love is a joy, but we're riddled with shame. Love longs to be expressed physically, but we're afraid to be truly exposed, to be truly naked before someone. Love is communal, but we don't even know how to talk about love and sex. Like, even right now, we're like, conclusion around the corner would be dope. Like, let's move on. This is hard. So how do we find healing for our bodies, for the bodies of our sisters and brothers? How do we rid ourselves of a love that has been distorted with shame? Well, first, we have to name a couple of things. We have to name the the ways we're trying to heal ourselves. See, ironically, the remedy of the religious world and the modern world are exactly the same. Purity culture and progressive culture teach us to rid ourselves of shame on our own. Religiously, we do this by obeying God with more faithfulness. This will ease the dissonance. This time, I will do exactly what God says, right? That thing of like, now now I'm going to do it. After a a moral failure or after a sexual sin, then we go, all right, next time I won't do that. We're going to obey next time. Now, in modern society, we do this by rejecting any higher power or any moral authority that leads to making us feel bad. I'm done with all of God's rules. I'm going to do it on my own. That's how I'm going to get rid of shame. But neither of these wash away shame because both simply make a new law. Both simply tell us that we can be our own saviors. Remember, love is for us, but love is not about us. Therefore, the healing of love is found in centering ourselves on a love that is perfectly joyful, is expressed physically, and is communal, a love without shame. This is what begins to bring healing to the bride as the poem unfolds further. Look at verse 8. If you don't know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tent. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are as lovely, are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. Remember, she's asked in her shame of her beloved, where are you? I want to come to you. And we hear from the man speak for the very first time, and his words, notice, directly address her shame. This is so critical for us, because even in marriage, even in intimate relationships, we can act like the healing thing is to not talk about the thing that is hurting someone, to not talk about the shame, to be sure it may take time, but he directly addresses, she's, he calls her beautiful. This is the first of three different times in the conclusion of this chapter that he calls her beautiful, the very thing she doubts. He also calls attention to her body through metaphor of a horse, which at first seems like a bad idea, right? You're like, yo, back off, like rewind, edit. <laughs> what he's getting at through metaphorical language <laughs> is the prestige the, the royal like pomp and circumstance, the grandiosity of her beauty. 
And he speaks about it in natural ways, in creative ways. It's not just how she physically appears naturally, but even in the creativity by which she adorns herself, which again gets at this purity culture thing. Many women grew up in the church that you better not have any earrings. You better not. Did you read the Song of Songs? He's rejoicing in her jewelry. He's rejoicing in her creative expression. But he's also being playful, and I love this. Because notice, he reciprocates her desire for physical intimacy with some directions. Here's how to come and find me. But if you look at those directions, they're really confusing. It's like you go along the path with the goats and the shepherd's tents, and it's like, wait, what? Unless this is part of a dance. Unless he's like, you know where to find me. You know where to find me. It's beautiful. He's ushering her. He's wooing her. He's inviting her. He's not ashamed of her body. He's not ashamed of her. And then the community responds, y'all, we're going to make you some more jewelry. We're so excited for you. This is amazing. She responds then with fresh delight, seemingly a strip of this shame is being torn away. And they celebrate each other. Look at verse 12. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a satchel, a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my, love, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. And Gedi was an oasis on the western shore of the Dead Sea. It was a place of vegetation and refreshment, a place, hear this, of restoration amidst the punishing desert. What's she saying? And Getty is in direct contrast to the scorching sun that darkened her skin. The bride is saying to her beloved, he is a healing oasis amidst the distortions of shame. This is Paul's profound mystery that points us not to this man, not to marriage, but to Christ and to the people of God. You see, if this is an allegory, the lesson is pretty clear. Only God is going to bring you this healing. So reject any affection or any physical urges, any sexual desire. Reject all of those things and find all of your satisfaction in God. If this is about sexual liberation, then the lesson is sexual fulfillment or romantic love, especially marriage, will heal you. But if, what, if, what if love is for us, but it's not about us? Well, then maybe the point is that God may use sex and romantic love to bring a level of safety of pleasure, of security, of companionship, but not because sex and love are healing and the ultimate healing that you and I need, but because through our romantic pursuit, we are longing rather for the one who has perfect joy, the one who has perfect safety. Rather, it's because in that imperfect enjoyment, we are drawn to a better love, a love that is perfectly joyful, expressed physically, a love that is deeply communal. See, the writer of Hebrews tells us to look to Christ in all things. Why? Because he is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He was joyful, even through the cross. He, his love, his love was expressed in the flesh. He showed up in real space, in real time. 
He was deeply connected to his Father and to the Spirit. He's at the Father's right hand right now, is what the writer says. Therefore, Jesus Christ alone could despise the shame of the cross and the shame in your heart and mine because he alone has washed away the shameful separation of the body and the soul. After all, church, in his incarnation, the Son of God reunited God and humanity, heaven and earth, spirit and flesh, body and soul. Through his redemption, then, he can make you whole. He can make me whole. He's the one that our bodies are ultimately craving. He's the one that our spirits ultimately are longing for. This means that a husband or a wife is not your healer, but a signpost to the healer. A real signpost, but a signpost nevertheless. This means sex is not evil. It's a gift from God to be enjoyed for his glory about telling the truth to the world about who he is. This means that love is for you to enjoy, but it's not about you. It's about the one who is love itself. Let's pray. Father, I need a breath because so much of what I have for decades been convinced you don't care about and you hold at a distance. You, sp- you speak your goodness, your truth, your beauty through it. And so, Father, we bring you our desires. We bring you our trauma and our wounds. We bring you our shame and our guilt. We bring our longings. We bring our stories, and we are so grateful, Father, that all of it is welcome, and all of it is welcomed by your love that took on flesh. That greater love, that love of loves. And so, Father, would you bring healing to us? Not because just in hearing it, we're fine, but in hearing it, we're pointed a particular way, and I pray that my sisters and my brothers would today merely take the next step in the light to know what true fellowship looks like with you, within themselves, and with one another. So God, would you be glorified in our healing, in our growth, and in our relationships, and in our love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.